This is your host, Caitlin Cook, and welcome back to the Dead Kate Bounce Experience. In this week's episode, I spoke with Dante Desparte and Alex McDougall. Dante Desparte is Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy at Circle, responsible for overseeing company strategy, communications, policy, and public affairs. Since joining Circle in 2021, his leadership in driving market expansion, regulatory engagement, and more have been integral in furthering the company's mission to raise global economic prosperity through the frictionless exchange of financial value. Prior to joining Circle, Dante served as a founding executive of the DM Association, leading policy, communications, membership, and social impact. He also brings two decades of experience as an entrepreneur, business leader, and global risk expert, most recently as founder and CEO of Risk Cooperative. He also served as an appointee on the Federal Emergency Management Agency's National Advisory Council. Currently, he is a member of the World Economic Forum's Digital Currency Governance Consortium and a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Additionally, he's co-author of Global Risk Agility and Decision-Making. Alex McDougall is the CEO of StableCorp, a Canadian fintech that achieved a global first by launching the first bank-issued stablecoin, along with pioneering the Stablecoin 2.0 model and is leading new approaches to cross-border blockchain-based payments. In his role, Alex leads the company in all areas, including strategic direction, ecosystem and partner expansion, development, compliance, and overall business growth. Prior to joining StableCorp, Alex was Managing Director at 3IQ, responsible for their venture and digital asset yield initiatives. Alex co-founded Bicameral Ventures, a venture platform focused on interconnected investing, blockchain, interoperability, data, and identity self-sovereignty, personalized AI, and Web 3.0. He's also the director of Big Shooter Golf. Alex started his career as an investment banker at the Bank of Montreal and led multiple projects and teams across BMO capital markets, including in fintech, M&A, and financial institutions. He sits on the board of directors at Balance Custody, is a CFA charter holder, and holds degrees in commerce, finance, and international business, along with a master's in accounting and finance. In the midst of what was the craziest and darkest week in crypto history thus far, in the wake of FTX and Alameda Research abrupt downfalls, Alex, Dante, and I took a step back to talk about one of the most critical and least sexy components of crypto today, stablecoins. We discuss what stablecoins are, the important role they play in a digitally native world, how stablecoins offer a cheaper and faster alternative to payment processing and international remittances, and more. We also discuss cross-border payments, the role that stablecoins could play for cross-border payments in crypto, and the work being done to make it happen. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Alex and Dante. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. 
We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency. All right, we've got a double feature today. Alex, Dante, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us, Caitlin. We're excited. Thanks, Caitlin. Super excited for this one. Stable coins in the midst of everything going on right now. So good to switch switch up the topic of conversation a little bit. Uh, I think it's helpful to uh, just in terms of context, always talking about you know where you're coming from, your background in the industry, where you got to where you are today, and. I guess specific to you two, um, both Alex, Dante, a little bit of a TLDR on the respective roles that Circle and StableCorp play within the broader industry as it stands. Uh, Alex, we'll we'll start with you. Excellent. Yes, I'm a dirty banker, uh, lightly and slowly reforming um, into this crazy space. Although it's a, <laughs> it's a tough space to uh, to reform into a little bit right now. Um, but no, so I was um, an investment banker at, uh, at Bank Montreal, um, worked on their M&A team, their financial institutions group, their big team, and actually started a little crypto group there as well. Um, and, you know, I, I come into finance from a very academic perspective, almost of, hey, there's people with money, there's people who need money, and what's sort of the bare minimum we need to do to connect the two to each other. Um, and so you, 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 from an outside perspective, you look at traditional finance and you know, it's very sophisticated and very well-oiled machine. It's been doing it for hundreds of years. You kind of lift up the, uh, lift up the hood and you know, it, it's a lot more manual, a lot more inefficient, a lot more you know, monkeys on typewriters than, than you'd think. Um, and so you know, digital assets kind of held a potential answer to actually solving these like trillions of dollars of frictions and legacy costs. Uh, that are you know stuffed and and sort of hidden down the uh, down the well of our existing financial system. Um, so I started a venture fund in 2018, um, focused on kind of full stack investing all the way down from like layer zeros to you know what grandma and grandma co would touch at the uh, at the top end, um, and really focusing on building about a bunch of the infrastructure in the middle, such that you know a, a mobility expert doesn't need to be a blockchain expert to build a great blockchain powered you know, mobility app. Those those types of connectivity. Um, and really, a lot of the lowest hanging fruit is around is around finance. It's around fintech. It's really the, the easiest stories to tell in this space are a lot around um, you know financial applications. Um, and so, stablecoins and, and sort of those bridge technologies of yields and, and front end and, and all of those pieces uh, were sort of what naturally drew uh, drew me uh, deeper into the space. Um, so we started StableCorp in uh, 2019. Uh, we launched a Canadian stablecoin and then really have just been building more and more infrastructure around cross-border payments, around multi-currency yields, um, around you know, the front end that makes it look, act and feel like a bank account. So all of those things that make it easy to engage with the space, um, with which we love to build with our good friends and uh, cross-border partners here, uh, Dante and, and the Circle Group. Yeah, on that note, we'll pass it over to Dante. All right. Well, uh, Caitlin and Alex, it's good to be with both of you. So I'm on, uh, I guess, the southern side of the border, even though we argue that Circle is headquartered on the internet. So we have no uh, former function other than internet <laughs> scale payments. Um, but, you know, to sort of address the question, uh, Caitlin, that you asked at the outset, uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons the stablecoin topic has been so um, evocative and has uh, drawn the attention of policymakers, regulators, bankers, and everybody else in between is because of all of the innovations in the digital assets economy, it is the most likely to be in the hands of uh, eventually billions of users. Um, and so Circle is coming at it from that lens, uh, building for the long term and trying to keep true to the very 
first word in the term stablecoin, trying to be a stable operator in an otherwise uncertain global macro environment, and frankly, in an otherwise um, uncertain uh, digital assets economy itself. Um, and so uh, USDC is Circle's core innovation. It is a dollar digital currency. We actually do not like the term stablecoin. Um, as a, as a category term, it's a little too generic, frankly, and includes in it um, assets that are anything but stable, as we have seen not long ago, and I'm sure we'll get into that, uh, with examples like the Terra Luna collapse and, and things like that. So um, our innovation is one in which you know we're solving for the original buyers and spenders remorse that people had um, when crypto came onto the scene 14 years ago, in which you know um, an asset that eventually appraises in value too quickly like Bitcoin did, or potentially de declines in value is not a great medium of exchange and payment instrument. And so the stablecoin was meant to solve for that. Um, I, I call original sin in the crypto economy, which was that, you know, buyers and spenders remorse was very real uh, with Bitcoin once upon a time. And so the stablecoin has emerged as, as that kind of like solution for economic stability in the market. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm, I'm Circle's chief strategy officer and head of global policy, but the company is, I like to say, the American stable corp. <laughs> <laughs> you beat my line to it. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and and just, just to build on that, I mean, I, I think we've, we've actually taken a lot of inspiration and innovation from what, what Circle's built around, hey, you know, there, there's an amazing um, set of use cases that can be accessed via using digital asset technology. Um, but you know, it, a margin-based business is never going to run its PL based on Bitcoin. Like it just does not make sense. So you know, stable coins are almost that you know, it, it hack to adoption, if you want to call it that. Like it's we we don't know where the end state of what a digitally native digital asset will be um, valued upon. But we do know that in today's world, in order to access those sort of real fundamental value use cases, we need something that's worth a dollar. And you know, I think I'm sure one thing we'll get into on the uh, experimental things that are worth a dollar sometimes versus the real things that are just you know, pieces of technology on top of a dollar. Um, yeah, that that's kind of key to the um, key to the the industry. Um, but you know, where where circles really excelled and what we've um, you know, what what we've sort of um, uh, partnered with them on a lot of stuff is building the machinery around it. Like a dollar, a digital dollar by itself is not that useful. You need places to swap it, places to use it, places to pay it, use cases for it, ways to earn yield on it, all of those pieces around it. Um, and I think sort of taking an ecosystem approach is is really what both of us uh, at StableCorp and, um, and American StableCorp are trying to do. <laughs> it's such an important point too, right? The interconnectivity aspect of it, because to your points, I mean, this is one of the first ways that most people will and most commonly will interact in this ecosystem, right? Something that is, you know, maybe stable is not the right word, as Dante mentioned, uh, maybe more stable. But um, it, it makes a lot of sense that this would be something that people are using on a more regular basis than anything else. I mean, anecdotally, I get paid in USDC and starting to kind of uh, more get more comfortable, you know, interacting in that ecosystem and stable coins are what I use most for sure. So on that note, in regard to adoption around stable coins, both from like US versus abroad from a global perspective and use case wise, where are we at now? And where do you see, you know, this going in the future from a from a, um, I guess, you know, user standpoint, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I'm happy to happy to jump in there. Um, And and congratulations on being paid in USDC. That that is a sign (laughs) of not only trust but a great example of user adoption. Um, And so, you know, my my message really is watch what they do, not what they say. Right. So, for example, you know, to pay uh, homage to Alex's former world in banking. Um, there's a reason why very large traditional financial institutions are taking kind of a long view on what the infrastructure represents. And I think all too often the crypto conversation tends to be a little bit short-termed in my mind that um, that is looking at you know the price movements of digital assets as opposed to the, the movements of institutional players. And so uh, right now uh, there, there was a recent survey that highlighted something like 75% of all the world's um, merchants and payment networks have a crypto acceptance strategy. And when you pierce through the headline, the medium of exchange for that crypto acceptance is ultimately a payment stablecoin. The legislation in the United States that's under review, and I think we'll be back on the docket in in a pretty significant way now that the midterm elections are all but done, uh, will normalize the so-called payment stablecoin as, a, as an innovation that is a part of the payment system that lives and breathes inside banking and prudential regulators and has certain standards baked into it, that will then start to create a pathway for mass adoption of the innovation as a part of always-on global payments. Um, and that's what we're starting to see as a company circle, uh, very, very clearly uh, evolving so that your use case of receiving um, you know, wages denominated in a stablecoin starts to become an option. For, for consumers and merchants and retailers around the world. And that's what the stablecoin fundamentally represents is uh, a medium of exchange that is internet native, device centric, and allows for always on trusted financial transactions on the internet. Um, so pleased to see that breakthrough starting to become a norm. Yeah, and and just to, to build on that, and I'll touch on the global aspect a little bit as well. Um, you know, it's, it's very nascent to even see, you know, um, payroll to, to, to be done in, in digital assets, even, even in stable coins. And I think it's, you know, it, it's, it's somewhat of a hallmark of, you know, the, the, um, the nascent status of the industry. I mean, Dante, you mentioned the, um, the you know, payment processing or payment providers and all too often it's, it's a company saying, Hey, you can slap on your website that you take crypto in 70 different things, but don't, 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 don't worry. Don't, you'll, you'll only see your nice, clean green dollars in your bank account. You don't need to worry about any of that stuff. And, you know, we'll charge you three, four, 5% in the middle. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's sort of up to us as an industry to, okay, even if it, if it is, okay, a stable coin that you're getting settled in, then, you know, Caitlin, I'm sure you, you mostly go and, and off ramp with your stable coin and go and, you know, pay your rent in, in US dollars and, and kind of do your, your usual transactions. Um, and that's, you know, still kind of the, the, the norm. I think we've, we've, we've gone one concentric ring out from, okay, I get paid in Bitcoin and I immediately swap it into US dollars and go. And we've sort of, you know, locked in value in a, in a medium of exchange, like a, like a stable coin. But it's really up to us as the industry to build that next leg out. We're like, what if, crazy idea, I don't go to fiat, but I continue to start paying and, and continue to you know, do these things with my stable coins. And a lot of that is you know, giving you sort of bank-like functionality. Can I pay bills with this? Can I earn yield on it while it's at rest in a trusted and transparent manner? Um, and a lot of that stuff is, is sort of infrastructure. Um, and and where you know where we get to with a lot of the cross border piece because you know, domestic payments and and obviously you guys are are, are more U.S. centric they're they're not they're not great but 
they're not the worst. Like you're paying kind of in, in the same country, ACH, e-transfer in Canada, it's certainly not instant. And you know, like we all know how the actual banking system settles things, T plus whatever, um, in, in, even in sort of domestic payments. Um, but it's it's not the the worst. It's really where you get that cross border stuff where you know, you start to stack on T plus two plus T plus two plus T plus two, and you start to get those baked in FX fees from when you're sending wires, um, and you start to get those like you know T plus a million settlements, and you're losing seven eight nine percent, especially when you're getting into the more esoteric currencies. Like that's where those ninety five percent plus um, friction removal fee or costs or savings are. Um, in in kind of creating this globally on chain web of commerce, um, and so when you know right now there there really isn't a, kind of an international stablecoin market. Like it's starting, and and Circle's taken some big big steps towards that with EuroC and um, and and some of the other uh, steps they've made in in Singapore. Um, you know, we we've we built uh, the the Canadian leg of that, and there's a few other good stablecoins in you know, the, in uh, South America and, and a few in in Europe as well. Um, but even the infrastructure around connecting them on chain FX, you know, the atomic swaps between um, between currencies where people don't have the capacity to pay you know, massive friction fees or the, you know, the the willingness to deal with crypto weirdness when you're just trying to make a payment. Um, you know, that that's the type of infrastructure that's sort of kept us to uh, the only people who are currently willing to go on chain native are the ones who are familiar enough with the technology to be able to kind of look past the clanks and deal with you know the the weirdness stuff that comes out of it so i think a lot of the stuff that we're building is is um financial technology and infrastructure providers right now is that it's that boring stuff it's just okay you know swaps between currencies stuff that we've done forever and ever and ever um that that isn't that um that esoteric or isn't that kind of uh, um the, uh, life or idea changing but it's game changing in sort of a quieter but more impactful way. Um, and so I think when when you look at you know all of the all of the stuff you can take out of the middle of that global financial system um, and, and replace that with you know a really really efficient, transparent, uh, liquid, proper decentralized peer to peer uh, currency swapping network. And then sure you'll still have fiat layered at the edge like we do today, and we can evolve in that and all that fun stuff. But that to me is where that sort of zero to one moment is when you can start to really get past a lot of that correspondent banking stuff. Um, and that's that's a big part of what we're trying to work on with uh, with Circle. I mean, the Canadian U.S. border is it's a huge cross border commerce corridor. It's a great place to start. And, and there's a lot of sort of uh, low hanging fruit to tackle there. The infrastructure part is so important, too. Right. And to, as you said, I mean, it's not the sexiest thing in the world. Right. But in terms of actually taking a financial innovation and making it really accessible and using it to the fullest extent, it has to be there. And there's a lot of considerations for that. So even even going back and I think I think it was Alex wrote about this as well. You look back to the original Satoshi White Paper. Right. And what crypto was intended to be originally international digital payments infrastructure taking aim at cross-border fiat flows, right? Again, that cross-border aspect is huge. And I, I think that there's still quite a long ways to go. And, you know, obviously you two are both working on that and can speak to it better than I can in, in terms of making that truly accessible and borderless. And I, I do I do think you mentioned, you know, stable coins and more of their in their purest form, right? But I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about more of the experimentation that we've seen in the space just because 
again, stable coins, I think are very underestimated by a lot of people with all of the other, you know, crazy and more out there things being built in the space in terms of utility and how often they're going to be used by people around the world is monumental. But let's talk a little bit about where people have steered away from maybe the base cases that you talked about for what stable coins should be and how they should be used. I'm thinking the Terra Lunas of the world and algorithmic stable coins in general, but curious to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, I'll take the first pass at that. And and I think that that honestly, the message of the evolution in the crypto economy from a speculative space to a utility value space is, is really what's happening right now. That that it does take the clarity of a Terra Luna blowing up. And, you know, it may until perhaps recently have been one of the largest uninsured and unfunded financial losses in sort of financial markets history. It takes the clarity of a moment like that, like it took the dot-com bubble to hand over internet development to companies and developers and businesses that had a view on, you know, real world impact. Uh, I think the same thing is happening today in this industry, right? That it's a blend of a dot-com moment plus the post-2008 financial crisis world where, you know, this kind of boundary line around, you know, what's the distinction between utility value innovations or core infrastructure innovations and global financial services from people playing sort of a short-term game. I think uh, I remain very optimistic that, you know, the infrastructure and the idea of what a payment stablecoin represents and the idea of what regulated um, business activities in the digital assets arena look like is in this process of convergence that soon enough you will not be able to tell the difference between where traditional brick and mortar banking begins and technology ends and vice versa. Uh, and that that goes back to the survey sightings of, you know, 75% of merchants planning on accepting crypto payments. Um, we see it already today, just as real world examples. Um, the US, uh, Mexico, USDC remittance corridor with Bitso is a powerful example of that. The work that Circle is doing with StableCorp um, in, in sort of cross-border payments. Um, in fact, you could argue we do not send cross-border emails. You send emails to trusted counterparties, irrespective of their jurisdiction or location. And I think over time, the idea that these innovations become normalized, then the real superpower of uh, payments and economic activity on public blockchain infrastructure is, is a borderless activity in certain ways, but traded through trusted counterparties. And so to analogize it even further, I think digital assets and crypto needs sort of its correspondent banking model. And this is where companies like Circle, like StableCorp, like Bitso have this implied, you know, crypto NAFTA opportunity if the, if the innovation starts to scale and starts to touch not just retail money flows and peer-to-peer -peer money flows, but also commercial ones. Um, and so I think across the board, around the world, um, something like USDC, by virtue of being built on open source technology standards, um, is available in 191 countries, right? A five-year-old innovation in, in that same span of time is, has a correspondent banking network that is device-centric and in the hands of end users in, in more than 191 countries. Um, that's a very, very powerful revolution in financial access, a revolution in programmable, composable money on the internet. Um, and, and the more it starts to then touch commercial money flows and trade and commerce, the better and more efficient I think those transactions can become. However, 
I think it's also critical to acknowledge that you cannot make those innovations very big on the edges of being well-regulated. And, and that's what Terra Luna teaches us. And that's what sort of a lot of the crypto correction today teaches us that you have to walk through the front door with regulators and policymakers and build on foundations of trust, um, whatever the form factor of money, whether code or bills. Yeah. And, and, and I think we've, we've learned that lesson a few times, very um, in very challenging ways over the last, you know, three, four, four or five months. Um, and it's sort of what we were talking about um, just in, in the preamble, Caitlin, of yeah, there's, there's this there's this idea or ethos in in digital asset land of oh it's decentralized oh it's transparent then you know regulation is less applicable to me because you know I'm, I'm you can see everything that I'm doing and it's all code it's not me like there's there's a whole bunch of sort of arguments that that fall on that um, and you know they they there's there's absolutely experimentation there's absolutely evolution in regulatory models there's absolutely kind of novel thinking and interesting approaches that need to be taken um, to the space to getting your arms around it and from a regulatory perspective uh, but like crime is crime and fraud is fraud and you know, <laughs> leverage is leverage and especially when you speed everything up and you know, reduce the amount of people who kind of really understand what's actually happening which is kind of what's happened in digital asset world. Um, you know, you you really kind of create a a brew that that needs smarter regulators, but still needs that that sort of oversight. And if 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 you know the the one end, and and I think this is where we'll where we'll kind of see you know some of the the bifurcation going forward here is we've we've tried this sort of hybrid model of these these huge centralized uh, V1 crypto players. And we've sort of gotten the worst of both worlds in, in many ways. So I think we will start to see some of the you know, more basic, more you know, boring shit that gets built during this like winter that's getting winterier um, on a on a daily basis here. Um, but really, you know, start to replicate and, and start to um, you know start to look um, a, a little more fundamental and traditional. Um, but just give you those big cost savings, which is a great sort of V one of of adoption. But I also think you'll you'll start to see that you know innovation sort of pushed even further into the future because um, we we have seen and and this is something that I think you know, we're we're all passionate about that because there's been bad examples of this that does not mean to kill innovation and it does not mean to you know stop experimenting stop building in sandboxes stop building this like you know full V two or V three or whatever version of like our economic structure that we're on. Um, we just can't conflate the two, you know, an experiment should not be $60 billion, but, you know, an experiment should be within a sandbox and have the appropriate regulatory structure around it and have people able to access it. And, you know, all, all of those pieces that have kind of built, you know, where, where we're at today. Um, and that's, you know, that's sort of the, 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 the biggest learning of, of Terra Luna and, and all of the other algorithmic stable coins that have, that have all universally blown up to date. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep looking for sort of stable financial assets that don't, you know, that that um, create more efficiency, um, that you know, that that create more um, ability to to keep everything natively on chain, that allow us to jump further ahead. Like there's, you know, there there is um, an answer out there at some point. I mean, ultimately, and this is something I've said a few times, and always get interesting re responses to. Yeah, the U.S. dollar and, and the Canadian dollar are, are basically algorithmic coins. 
you know, there is an algorithm that lives behind it for when we're creating more money, what we're doing with interest rates, how we're setting central bank rates that creates, you know, the, the value of this coin. It's not back to anything. It's not pegged to you know, dollars or, or um, uh, gold or anything like that. You might argue that it's backed by military, but you know, ultimately it was it was a set of alchemy and a set of, of, um, of decisions and a set of uh, decisions that made sort of the value that it is today and it made the structure that it is today. And you know, that, that was a much more efficient model than pegging it to an artificially supply um, value like gold. But it took a long time to do. It didn't go out overnight. It didn't sort of happen all at once. It certainly wasn't decided on Twitter. Um, and, and so it's it it's sort of that, you know, we've sped up the evolution of some of this stuff way too fast. And, and that's the cool part of crypto because it's all machine speed. And theoretically, we can automate, you know, everything. But when you automate, it's like building an Excel model. If you don't have a, a the, the right uh, cell linked up when you make it fully circular, you get a billion hashtag refs and the whole thing blows up. So you know we need to have those guardrails in place to be able to hit control Z and go back in iteration and have the right regulations in place uh, to be able to encourage experimentation while recognizing like what's what's ready for prime time versus what's an experimentation of something that might you know pay huge dividends in two, 10, 15 years as well. It's such an important important point too, right? Because again, all of the innovation that's happening in a space that's growing so quickly you know, the experimentation is going to happen to your point should be contained, shouldn't be $60 billion projects and whatnot. Um, but the regulation does need to be there. It needs to be done in a way that's not stifling the responsible innovation that is in the works. Right. And stable coins are a really big uh, part of that for various reasons that we've already talked about, but on a regulatory front, I'm clearly biased to the US, but curious from a global perspective in terms of regulation, because everyone's always asking about regulation, what is the current state of how stablecoins specifically are seen through a regulatory lens, both in the States and abroad? I'll let the uh, king of Micah start. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> start yeah, up. I mean, you know, again, partly because of the stablecoin is the most likely innovation in crypto to be used by everyday consumers in everyday ways, it has been the most evocative. And um, and so since 2019 and the introduction of the, the once Libra project, later rebranded, later failed, uh, there's been a pretty consistent global policy conversation that's now starting to result in actual legislative proposals and actual um, bills that are not only being debated hotly here in the US, uh, but the entire body of law that the Europeans have proposed uh, was a market reaction to the emergence of global stablecoins, uh, as, as some are calling them. Um, the Europeans are effectively putting the stablecoin category into electronic money, which goes to, I think, a lot of the points that Alex raised that, you know, this is an innovation in the payment system and as a part of sort of constantly upgradable financial markets infrastructure. And so the Europeans under the markets and crypto assets framework, which I, I joke will be to crypto what GDPR was to privacy, uh, will fall into a regime uh, like for like in terms of um, the activity around electronic money and the movement of money. Other jurisdictions uh, like Singapore, where Circle recently received um, in principle approval as a payment systems operator, a major payment system, um, will be sort of equally regulated in a jurisdiction like Singapore. And here in the United States, I always take a little bit of umbrage on behalf of the state's uh, banking and, and, and payment supervisors where Circle is regulated equally to traditional payments companies like PayPal and Stripe and, and uh, Apple Pay and so on. 
that if the sheer number of licenses held is a proxy for being well-regulated, then we're amongst the best regulated companies in the market. What is missing is a federal pathway that I think will be closed relatively soon um, as a part of legislation that candidly things like Terra Luna and the broader sort of uh, you know turmoil in the crypto markets lend urgency to will eventually have federal clarity as well. Uh, the United States is alone in the advanced economies um, in not having a payment system charter or a non-bank pathway to be an electronic money issuer and money operator. And that's a gap that we have from a global competitiveness point of view. And I suspect we will close that gap. Uh, the stablecoin is the pathway to close it, but the implications are bigger. Uh, it's about fintech competition and banking. It's about sort of rules-based approaches in this space. And so my suspicion is uh, we will soon, as soon as 2023, have uh, regulatory and legislative clarity in the US on the edges of where it's missing um, and more a matter of competitiveness than anything else. Yeah, um, and uh, to to uh, build on some of that, I think you know, the the um, the intelligence of no, not the intelligence, the sophistication of the regulators in in you know, this space has has increased uh, exponentially in certain pockets um, in the last you know eighteen twenty four months. And you know, they they uh, Dante, your to your initial point about you know stable coins being a, a misnomer. Um, th this is one of kind of the biggest pieces of it. Of yeah, there's there's a there was a lot of education required in the aftermath of of Terra Luna around okay, you know this is this this is that they are extremely different. One is a a set of experimental math that happens to equal a dollar, and one is a dollar with a thin layer of technology on top of it. Um, and and so it, it, a part of it is is even just sort of breaking down those those um, yeah the, those types of misconceptions. Um, and, and and I think it's it's been it's been both helpful and and not helpful having kind of international banking legislators, so the Bank of International Settlements, things like that, um, being somewhat ahead of the game. So the the BIS um, rules that that came out and and some of the the initial BIS guidance on crypto, um, you know, is, was well in advance of sort of anything formal from uh, from most bank regulators. Um, and, you know, they, it wasn't particularly evolved thinking like Bitcoin was basically you, know, you, you if you hold it on a bank balance sheet, it's it's you know, atrocious for your capital efficiency. You can't use it as collateral. A bunch of thoughts that you know, weren't, weren't necessarily with where we would hope that that they would get to. But they did create this category of tier one assets, which were, you know, they called them tethered assets, which uh -huh. um, and, and um, they're they're basically the, the construct being. You know, it's all about how you construct these assets. And if you are presenting them as cash equivalents, as long as you, you, you build the right infrastructure such that the cash is actually equivalent to them, then a bank can hold them equivalent to cash. And, and I think that sort of that general construct um, helped local bank regulators and helped to help local um, regulators at, at a, at, at, um, as a whole get a little bit of a bigger you know, handle on on sort of okay the the globe is sort of all looking at this roughly in the same way i, I think the, the the securities regulators um that's a somewhat of a different kettle of fish like the i can speak for for the canadian side um a, a little bit so if it's a bank issued coin like one of the coins that that we're that we're working on then it's you know it is a business of banking instruments. It's you know, they're well within banks' rights to to do it. 
Um, and that's sort of explicitly outside of securities law. It's it's relatively black and white and, and easy to get ahead. The whole other host of things with bank issued coins around you know, where, where they can travel, all of that fun stuff. But from a securities law perspective, you know, there, there's some route there. With with more privately issued coins or you know, technology company issued coins, um, you know, there's a whole host of opinions and thoughts and, and interpretations of, of how how this is or is not a security. And, and I think most of them get away from the fundamental point of this is not trying to be a security and this is not trying to solve things that are securities like. And if you regulate it as a security, you're you know, you're effectively killing the market. Um, and and it's, it, it doesn't necessarily fit those kind of same prudential um, regulations that that securities legislator is trying to is trying to solve. So I think what, you know, when Dante is talking about you know, being regulated as a payments innovation and, and looking at it as a set of technology that evolves the current structure for moving, you know, these offline dumb dollars around, um, you know, that that's really the way that we should be looking at it. And, and I think regulators are starting to get a little bit smarter about it. Um, in some cases, in some, certain jurisdictions, they're getting a lot smarter about it. So Canada just launched a, a consultation um, over the next little while, you know, the, the very early stages on our end. Um, they, our, our banking regulators come out with a little bit more guidance around it. Um, but it's it sort of in, in fits and starts across the uh, the globe where, um, where, where the regulators are heading next with it. But I do agree that, hey, this is the lowest hanging fruit. Um, this is the probably the easiest to understand and get our heads around from a regulatory perspective. So it, it makes sense that they're starting. Definitely. And talking about it again from like a global perspective, I do want to sort of set the scene for discussing what you guys had alluded to already around the idea of a crypto NAFTA and, you know, cross-border payments. So when it comes to the role stablecoins could play in those cross-border payments, and you've mentioned some of this already around infrastructure and whatnot, what is an ideal of structure for like for that look like and what's missing today? Yeah, I'm I'm happy, happy to jump in there. And and I think look, it, it, the starting point is do these innovations replace existing ways of moving money or do they augment them? And so it's worth starting at what is the current option? And something as simple as a global peer-to-peer payment or remittance, if you haven't processed one anytime soon, I would, I would, I would sort of invite anybody who's listening to go do it. Go to, first of all, try to find your nearest MoneyGram or Western Union location. And you probably end up at a 7-Eleven somewhere in a city uh, to fill out forms and triplicate and, and sort of find the destination to send the money. And so it's an incredibly inefficient way of moving money around the world. The same would hold true for commercial transactions and commercial trade. Um, I used to, in a former life, um, run a global automotive logistics company and to ship any good via traditional commercial means around the world is to subject yourself and to subject your business to the car, the global correspondent banking system and um, letters of tr- letters of credit, uh, bank guarantees, irrevocable letters of credit. That entire business model, in my mind, hasn't had a systems upgrade since the 1700s. And, and you know, calling correspondent banks to see if a company and its bank guarantee actually have sufficient capital to release goods at a port uh, feels very, very antiquated. And so uh, the utility value of blockchain-based financial services, where even two counterparties that don't necessarily know each other can have the same version of the truth and the same reference ledger that shows whether or not funds are in escrow, 
I think is a very, very powerful tool. And one of the reasons, frankly, um, major uh, banks like JP Morgan and their, their team at Onyx are contemplating what would the JPM coin innovation represent if it could be normalized in traditional cross-border banking and payments. And it's just a more efficient way of contemplating that use case. Um, and, and so you could envision a world, I cannot wait for the world in which you no longer talk about blockchain or crypto as the technologies, but rather the technology stack fades to the background and the foreground becomes the outcomes that markets and people are looking for, which is better, faster, cheaper settlement of financial transactions. That's what this innovation is all about in the first place. And the more candidly we can get regulatory clarity and harmonize that regulatory clarity, the more that utility value becomes the, the story, as opposed to crypto loses a trillion dollars, speculators are wiped out, uh, consumers are harmed. I, I do think it's, it's really important that not only the industry looks at itself in the mirror, but the regulators and policymakers do as well. And my general admonishment to all of them is hurry up and wait is not a great strategy. Uh, but getting to the utility value phase um, is next, and, and we should be very encouraged by what that looks like. Um, the last quick point is we should not forget, to, to Alex's point about dumb dollars, um, the real breakthrough of, of stable coins and digital currencies is the idea of programmability and composability. Um, a lot of what takes place in sort of advanced financial services is humans are the programmers and are the program. And so you have to rely on the trust of thousands of people and a lot of bank overhead and Wall Street overhead to conduct activities that can otherwise be enshrined in code. So a bank guarantee can be evidenced and escrowed on a public blockchain and that when goods are received, uh, you know, the public blockchain is liquidated and the payment is liquidated. That whole world of programmable money zero default lending, low cost, instant cross-border payments and, and the like, I think is we've seen green shoots all over the world of these examples kind of emerging, but to normalize them to address trillions of dollars of global trade and commercial trade implies that across those borders, uh, the digital asset enjoys like for like regulatory clarity and harmonization um, rather than one person's payment stablecoin is another country's e-money token is a third country's banned digital asset. And so we do have to live within the, the world that we live in today, despite the fact that the technology is already ready for prime time. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, remittances are basically any innovation in them right now is 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 fake usually it's it's a bunch of assets sitting on both sides and never actually crossing the border and then a front end being like ah look at all of this cool efficiency that we've built here um and 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 that's you know, really how we've kind of solved the correspondent banking system is just bigger balances you know more obfuscation of of um the you know the challenges that that exist currently and so you know i think to to make it a bit tangible like what what we've kind of structured to build with uh with the circle team right now is so a Canadian business onboards with with our front end. Um, one of the things that we're very passionate about is is this idea of KYB sharing and sort of multiple onboarding. So the way we the way we're we're building it with um, with the Circle infrastructure is yeah, they onboard with us. We know what the Circle requirements are for onboarding. We're basically matching it from our our uh, client's perspective, having sort of a back end process with the Circle team whereby we can seamlessly onboard our clients directly with them as well, um, have the Circle infrastructure serve as the, um, you know, the, the end leg of that, um, 
digital asset transaction and, and the, the local regulated um, side of the house. So that you know, digital correspondent banking structure that, uh, that, that Dante mentioned, um, and then have uh, FX service providers, whether entirely on chain or at, at least centralized, but using you know, native crypto swapping to go from the uh, Canadian dollar stablecoin into a US dollar denominated stablecoin in real time and instantly settled. So you don't have to get a quote, send fiat money, have it settle maybe same day, probably next day, have the FX company go around, send it back to you, then send it out somewhere else, each of which has that sort of T plus one. So when you're paying a bill in America from you know, the, the, the uh, stable corporate grapes account in Canada, you basically enter in who, where you want it to end up and choose whether it settles in USDC or US dollar fiat as, as governed by the, the circle infrastructure in the US. You reach into an FX provider that's giving you real-time quotes because they can real-time settle, pull out that FX rate, get your Canadian dollar rate, either pay it with stable coins that you already have, or click it and then reach into your Canadian bank account and do a pull for that C dollar amount and convert. And basically, you can have a US dollar settled invoice that the transaction costs are domestic rails on both sides. So it's ACH on the end and, and e-transfer or whatever on the way in a liquid US uh, Canadian dollar stablecoin FX swap that, you know, that that's really where the innovation needs to be on a lot of those FX pieces. But you can have real time settling, real time quoting, real time actual FX rates, and basically have you know, instant settlement into the US structure and out. That That's kind of the dream of something that it, if you have a supplier in the US that has no idea about anything to do with crypto, all you need is their their bank account and our users circle account we kind of manage all of this stuff on the back end, but it's all in your name. It's all transparent to you. You're clicking three buttons and then the digital asset rails are creating the rest of the magic for you. And you look back at your statement at the end and, and you know, if you're doing it on low cost networks, that whole thing, if you're getting good FX spreads can cost you five bips and zero transaction costs versus wires, time, FX, all of those things baked in. And it's those like 90, 95% cost savings. Like that's what's going to be the Oh, of course I should do this versus uh, maybe, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. Like that's really sort of the, the tangible outcome of what we're trying to build here. So my biggest question on all of this too, and not even specifically talking about the US and Canada only, but just global stablecoin market, global crypto market. So much of the adoption of crypto broadly has been outside of North America. In fact, it's been pretty much everywhere else, right? So but I, I think even maybe something you wrote, Alex, 94% of stablecoin market cap is in USD. And one of my big questions is more around if you're trying to improve kind of the cross-border payment part of this, and you mentioned a lot on FX, how does that work, right? I mean, how does how do we build out a market of stablecoins that aren't primarily USD, like USD denominated to really encompass and represent more accurately kind of the the usage that we've seen at a global scale? Mm. Yep. Uh, go ahead, Dante. Are yeah, no, I, I was going to say, I mean, so you're right on the one hand that there is a void in the world for um, alternative currencies to be represented in the digital assets economy. But at the same time, the reason the dollar is the currency of reference in digital assets is because, you know, um, at some level, if you're creating a digital twin through the process of issuing a stable coin of the real economy, then it would stand to reason that the digital economy would find its parity in representing the real world. And so 
the dollar globally is the reserve currency of the planet, especially today in, in, a, in an, a market environment with so much um, economic uncertainty and macro uncertainty. It's not surprising that dollar denominated stable coins are, are growing and or represent sort of the lion's share of how crypto is being priced. Um, but we do see a, a need and a, a void to be filled for representing alternative important global currencies as well. Um, Circle, for example, has launched a actual euro-backed stablecoin. Um, there's others in circulation, but we, we think equally to what we've done with USDC, there was always a void for trust, transparency, and accountability in referencing a digital banking system. Um, so Euro stablecoin, which is on course to becoming the largest Euro stablecoin in circulation. Um, so therein lies, I think, an implied on-chain FX opportunity that can create more efficient markets and and sort of a digital asset that that can denominate um, one of the second global sort of currencies. The question of then how do you roll out that operating model and that business model to represent other currencies? And then the next question, I think importantly, is given the type of prudential management and banking risk management that you have to follow, which currencies become good candidates to become privately issued stablecoins? And then the next threshold question down the line is then how do these innovations potentially um, operate and coexist with the potential emergence of central bank issued digital currencies and so on? And so we're trying to maximize for interoperability and maximize for use cases that support um, the world as opposed to single operators and single entities and single currencies. Yeah, and and I agree that there's a reason the US dollar stablecoin market emerged first um, and, and has kind of continued to be the, the largest. Like it, it, it's back to my point before of, of it needs an ecosystem to work within for a stablecoin to matter. You can't solve one leg of a transaction if you just need to jump back into fiat. You're ending up, you know, creating more of the uh, more friction than than you're solving with the Canadian or with a, with any currency stablecoin. And so it, it, it's it's an evolution to get the infrastructure um, sophisticated and smart enough in order that the you know, there there is a obviously a gigantic FX market that exists in the world despite a lot of the you know currency and, and dollar uh, um, uh, global economy running in, in U.S. dollars, um, and so to get the FX market or to get the the digital asset market. Um, far enough along such that the on-chain FX piece is a natural next step. Um, I think that's where a lot of the work has been going in the last, you know, particularly in the last kind of nine, nine, 12 months, um, as we need more and more of these, these types of cross-border commerce. Um, and, and I think you know, it, it's, it's um, a good example is, is international exchanges that, that offer sort of C dollar trading pairs to, to local um, uh, users or offer whatever dollar trading pairs, all of that liquidity is backed onto US dollar denominated liquidity across sort of the digital asset trading world. Um, but you know, the, the FX markets in, in the world only operate you know, nine, nine to five on, on Monday to Friday, or at least for, from you know, the, the bank piece or the bank side that you can access it. So if you're running a book domestically that trades 24 seven, and you're only able to access FX markets on like a bank schedule, you end up with major currency mismatches. And that's a huge problem for people who are operating in different de local denominated currencies. And so like those types of on-chain effects where, okay, now everything can trade 24 seven in a bunch of these um, um, uh, a bunch of these markets, like that, there's a huge opportunity there to take out frictions kind of globally and, and sort of 
right now we have the the US um, hardcore of, of the stable coins and then all FX being pushed out to, to fiat side, which you know, places burdens basically on the, on the local and, and domestic currencies, which is fine in some ways. And it's a great start. It's a great you know, way to way to begin adoption. But you know, if you're looking for those like 95% value savings and sort of creating this two-way flow into and out of uh, the U.S. and some of the major uh, the major currency partners, you need that to be sort of it's almost like fiber to the curb versus fiber to the home. Like you need to have that that uh, stable coin to the home type of uh, connectivity at the end as well. And, and a lot of that relies on you know local partners. A lot of that relies on on local banking systems. You know, you're you're to your point, Dante of you can't be swapping from uh, you know what's what's uh, a, a known and and um, regulated stablecoin into a, an unlisted security and at the endpoints and that, that doesn't work when you don't have sort of regulatory connectivity. Um, but that that really is sort of up to us as the industry right now to to build those last miles and to build those connective fabrics at the endpoints of all of this American dollar liquidity. I think if if we can sort of you know it, um, think about where our next steps are, obviously we built a bunch of this stuff in in Canada. But a lot of it's around connectivity to to the U.S. Then there's a ton of jurisdictions that have their major trading relationships with the U.S. that still struggle and suffer from from similar types of frictions. I mean, you know, Bermuda is a great example. Fantastic digital assets country. A lot of it's denominated in U.S. A ton of the trade and volume goes back and forth. Um, and you know, they they do have some some things in in their own uh, their own uh, Bermudan dollar as well. Uh, but there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of those those types of currency where. You, you lose some of the value and specialness by not having digital assets all the way to the end. Um, and so I think that's sort of our, our goal and job as, a, as an industry is to sort of build that infrastructure all the way out. So, so wrapping this up here, for those who want to follow along with what you're you're doing, you know, StableCorp and Circle on Crypto NAFTA, anything else really as well, what are next steps and where can people follow along with that? Um, so some, sorry, go ahead, Dante. No, I, I would say, I, I mean, I do think, you know, there is a Cambrian explosion despite the news, despite the headlines, and despite the big short of this industry. Um, there is nonetheless a Cambrian explosion in population scale access to device centric, trusted, well regulated financial services. And trusted, well-regulated companies like Circle, like StableCorp, and like others will emerge as the biggest winners of an otherwise complex environment. Um, don't take my word for it. Uh, the, the number two person at the Bank of England, Sir John Cunliffe, said, the companies that survive uh, this particularly dark, cold crypto winter will be the Amazons of the future. And, and at some level, um, that then would represent a world in which, you know, trusted forms of, of instant payments that are device centric can be sort of enabled and empowered for consumers and markets and other participants around the world in trusted ways. And, and that's the breakthrough. Um, Circle's unrelenting in that effort. And I know StableCorp equally is unrelenting in that effort. And how this then plugs in to this broader idea of sort of, a, of an implied crypto NAFTA is more of a policy and regulatory opportunity than it is about what single companies can do. But we've started to see some examples of that uh, that type of demand already emerging. Yep. And uh, we we put out a, an interesting announcement with a partner of ours, uh, Sale GP, um, about a month ago around a cross-border payment for paying out a, a sailing racer in the U.S. using USDC. 
So it's those types of use cases that where we can draw a direct equivalent to what they used to do through the banking structure versus what they can do through this type of infrastructure. Um, those are going to be where we continue to really shine lights and, and draw you know, ecosystem spotlights and really kind of tell that story. Um, we're also looking to have more uh, more trading pairs um, that are well you know, well supported and, and um, liquid between a, between multiple currency stable coins um, to be able to be accessed via API, to be able to be automated, to be able to sort of drive those transaction flows from end to end. Um, so stay tuned for for more um, and more smoothness in uh, all of this fun stuff that we're building out, um, despite all of the chaos in the industry today. Like it's as as annoying and frustrating as this is, I think we are building the right type of infrastructure to do this correctly for the next leg of massive growth. Um, and, you know, it's it's going to be the boring stuff that gets the job done. And, and you know, Dante and I love kind of nerding out on on a lot of this. Um, and so it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun to be able to uh, to tell it to the world and, and show some real value propositions and use cases. Definitely. More smoothness on the horizon. I love to hear it. And I'll definitely be following along. Big fan of the work that both of you are doing and really appreciate you being on today. So thank you so much. And thank you to everyone for listening as well. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the hosts or any of their affiliates. This podcast is for commercial and informational purposes only, is not investment advice, and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending any securities or cryptocurrencies, nor is this an offer or sale of a security or cryptocurrency.